Hi, everyone. It's Raghu back with Ramdas here and now. Another great episode. I'm going to tell you about it in a second or two. But first, I want to let you know that Ramdas's memoir, I, I believe I talked about this on the last podcast, but Ramdas's memoir, which is called Being Ramdas, is going to come out on January 12th, if my memory serves. And so it is phenomenal. Of course, I've had the opportunity to read it. And maybe actually not thoroughly yet. So it's like a big book with uh, a lot of great, great pictures from back in the day all the way through his life. And... Um, well, we need your help, okay? You guys want to help. I'm sure many of you would want to have this book. Uh, it is, uh, especially Ramdas just left a year ago on December 22nd. So I think given the fact that uh, many of you would like to get the book, what would really help is if you pre-ordered the book now. Because what happens is the, the big sellers like Amazon will then do a lot more to make it available and to let people know it is available by virtue of uh, bigger pre-orders. So this is a, an ask on my part as part of the Love Serve Remember Foundation. Please, if you can... Do a pre-order with this book, and all you have to do is going to is go to the website beingramdas.com, and you'll you'll see on the top left-hand corner pre-order book, and you can just go and do that. Also, then you can start playing around because there's a a, a raft of different pictures, some of them not in the book, and there's a few excerpts that are available. To read, there is some uh, media from Ramdas, audio stuff, and um, it's a very rich experience around this book, and it'll give you a, a real idea of what is contained within. So I uh, please do make the uh, at least go over to the website beingramdas.com. And then see if you can pre-order. It would be great. Or just look around. You can leave comments about what Ramdas has meant uh, for you as an individual in this lifetime. So there's that. And then the other thing I wanted to let everybody know is that Ramdas, as I said, left on December 22nd, 2019. Fast coming here. We just turned the corner into December 2020. So we're going to have a lovely evening. Sign up at ramdas.org. Put your email address in there because we'll be making an announcement. We make all, of course, we offer so many different things, free courses. There's a movie nights and Soul Land music series. We have so many different things that, uh, that we feel are a wonderful opportunity to share. So on December 22nd, we will be announcing this very shortly. Uh, we're going to show uh, some movies. Krishna Das is going to sing and talk a little bit. Ramesh, who wrote the was the book, uh, the memoir with Ram Das uh, in Maui over the last five or six years, uh, we'll be doing a couple of readings. We have a wonderful film 
uh, Evolution of, yogi, of a Yogi, which is a film made in 1969, 70, I believe, and uh, featuring Ramdas at his father's farm. We all used to gather there and do Sufi dancing and meditating and yoga and all of it. It was really, really, really uh, uh, a fun place, and that's depicted in the short film. Then we're going to have a film that we're just finishing now called Love and Humor, which is uh, Ramdas and his last 15 years in Maui and excerpts from that. It's, uh, it's going to be delightful. And then we're, uh, it's a joint um, venture with uh, the Taos Hanuman Temple, the Neem Karoli Baba Hanuman Temple in Taos, New Mexico to help raise funds for them as nobody can go there because of COVID. And uh, going to show a movie about Neem Karoli Baba uh, so it's a rich evening. It's going to start Pacific time, 3.30, I believe. But again, get on the mailing list so that you can get an... It's all free stuff. You can get an idea of uh, how to join and when and so on. So that... Those are my commercials for today. So to this episode, which was... Wow. 1983 in Santa Cruz. And, and this is, again, it's another one of those mind-blowing episodes or talks that, we, that we've taken uh, 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 to uh, repurpose for podcast in that uh, the amazing thing is this, this is so right on for what's going on in our world right now. I know I've said that a number of times with some different podcasts, uh, and different talks of Rama, but this one's nuts, okay? Um, I mean, he's got a thing in here where he asks the question, dig this, is this moment any more dramatic than the plagues of the Middle Ages? I mean, it's insane how, how that jives with what uh, what's going on now. Uh, so there's a lot around the creation of mind here and, and the how we deal with uh, the the day-to-day scenarios around the creations that we create through our mental um, burping, shall we say. Um, If you look at the world of this moment, it appears that even though there is more juice in paranoia, in negativity, in worldly power tripping, there is simultaneously an incredible shift of awareness of people in the culture, in the world. So to me, this really speaks to what's going on with us. And I I call this because I found this uh, wonderful little aphorism from ancient Chinese about the kind of times that we're, chaotic times and that we are living in called dangerous opportunity. And that really, this thing that Ram Dass just talks about is that, and uh, that we can get through this, it really will, has the potential to create a shift in awareness, big, big time. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's pretty amazing that uh, he spoke directly to what is going on with us. Um, he, uh, wh- he says, what what is all our work on consciousness been about? And what are the relationships of of worldly power to what might be called spiritual power? What is the way we can con- to contact with that common thread that is our heritage as human bring- beings? 
and that, of course, is, is absolutely the most important. Uh, the uh, the fact of our inter- interconnectivity and uh, what has brought that to the fore more than this pandemic that is happening in every corner of our world. And, um, and now we have to really... Uh, own up to the heritage that we have as human beings is to care about each other and act in a manner that is uh, less self-serving. Let's just start there. So what else? He sets this up. uh, This is a comment from Nathan, who gives me these wonderful notes. Nathan, who is our curator of Ramdas. Library. He sets this up with some very relevant commentary for the current political and global climate, which I just emphasize. Uh, and, you know, the general theme is consistently returns to is asking who and where we are in relation and response to the challenges we face on any and every scale. No matter what the the scenario, we are almost always dealing with creations of the mind. And he does this great thing. uh, He talks about in the very beginning, and he quotes, so there was a newscaster back in that day in the 80s named Walter Cronkite. He was like the most trusted man in America. And he would end the newscast with, and that's the way it is today. Uh, But... As Ramdas said, well, that was his reality, and it's the reality of anybody who's who's uh, got a a uh, a public uh, um, platform from which to uh, interpret the reality. And uh, but how about that's the way it is today? Um, let's see what else. I like this part that um, that there, there's a possibility of a rebirth of the definition of ourselves and what we're doing in the universe, and that's what makes the kind of changes that uh, are so necessary with what we're going through right now. Uh, and that that kind of stuff is scary because it's just a a creation of mind and a conspiracy of mind about what is real. And that's going around now quite a bit. That word is such a, a touch point these days, conspiracy. And he talks about conspiracy of mind about what is real. But again, I go back to that Chinese saying and and just... Uh, dangerous opportunity and that opportunity is about rebirth rebirthing a definition of our, of ourselves and what we are doing in the universe so this uh, yeah this talk is so right on and has so much stuff in it that uh, it just relates and can help in terms of our day-to-day um, being able to be resilient and live through what we are have been living through this year, 2020. Um, and of course, he emphasizes the, the real focus is on the individual human heart because if we can f- get our own hearts straight, we can radiate from that place and really stop some of the 
terrible polarization that is going on in this world and, and certainly in this country. Um, and he's, so the, the last thing I'll mention, a, a quote from him, it's letting go of what we thought we needed in order to become more of what we are, right? That's our thought for the day. So this is a fantastic talk. Um, and uh, by the way, go up to, so Ramdas Here and Now is on the Be Here Now Network. As you know, go to BeHereNowNetwork.com. There's so many other podcasts that um, I am sure you'll enjoy. You can go to the one that I do with uh, called Mind Rolling. And you can also, uh, there's, there's a couple of, there's, there's a, uh, someone new, meaning just been doing podcasts with us for the last few months. Her name is Conda Mason, and she has a voice that is exceptional, and I urge all of us to tune in to Conda. And uh, uh, she's a meditation teacher, and she's been a champion for racial in against racial injustice for many, many, many years and has, uh, again, something very powerful, a powerful message. Conda Mason, go up and take a look. And I will see you next time with another uh, Ramdas talk. Ramdas here and now. Namaste. We're considering all this in a context, in a few contexts, the first is the, in our daily lives, the social, political, economic context in which we are living. That's the one that is the reality that Walter Cronkite used to say at the end of each broadcast, and that's the way it is today. And that was the way Walter Cronkite saw it to be. It was only his reality. And it's what the news broadcasts describe as reality each day. And that includes um, uh, the awakening of Islam fundamentalism, the oil issues, uh, the Russian preoccupations with uh, certain political structures and power, the uh, Israel-Arab tensions with the Palestinians, the... Uh, inflation and the end of a lot of social programs in the West, the increasing terrorism and violence, the uh, mobility, the breakdown of marital structures, of social structures that are familiar, the kind of anarchic quality as third world countries become more powerful and start to have little red buttons of their own. Um, the existence of Qaddafi on the world scene. Uh, who is he? What does he represent? Uh, these are things that um, the increasing possibility of uh, the fact that we have already been contaminated or maybe on the edge of being contaminated by nuclear wastes that are in the uh, earth, in the atmosphere, the uh, increasing problems of uh, atmospheric conditions, smog, and uh, acid rain, the effects on the crops of various fertilizers and spraying, the um, increasing 
amount of prejudices that we thought were gone towards uh, minority groups, the uh, breakdown of a lot of social mores concerning uh, uh, style of living, the lack of uh, the way in which we are destroying natural resources, the existence of uh, James Watt, uh, Jim Watt, as uh, our uh, interior secretary. It's just a whole range. I'm just giving you the social, political, economic domain in which we are meeting today. That's one reality. And that one has in it um, uh, a feeling of malaise, a feeling of uneasiness, a feeling of, um, in the culture, you can see, you can feel a certain fear, quite a bit of fear. And that fear leads people to take certain actions. It leads them in part to uh, become more hedonistic, like it's all going to go up anyway, so I'm going to get what I can while I can get it. Uh, it leads people to um, get very uh, rigid in trying to hold on to their little piece of the rock uh, in the sense of um, getting much more caught in the the polarity, say, of good and evil, of if I am good and if I create these boundaries and if I protect them, then somehow all this will be all right, even though there is chaos right outside my door, right where I am, I will be safe if I'm good enough and if I uh, represent those forces, good versus evil. This is an issue of good versus evil is the way they perceive it and the evil they see as external to themselves. And for other people, and deep in, in, the, in the cultural consciousness, is actually an expectation and almost a yearning for Armageddon, for the end of it all. Like, uh, I expect it's all going to go up, and it's just a question of whether we're going to end up because we overpopulate, or we contaminate, or we all get cancer, or the nuclear bomb does it, or which one is it going to be? Because you can feel in the government, you can feel very, very little, uh, and in the world political picture, very, very little humanistic concern, very little compassion. Uh, everything seems to be dealt with with might or worldly power. And it gets so that you begin to think that the issue really is AWACS or uh, tanks or uh, MX missiles, silos, and that all becomes the jargon and consciousness of the culture. And you and I are part of this moment. And part of what we're doing this weekend, collaboratively, is exploring what has happened to us and who we are in this melodramatic panoply of events. What has all of our work on our consciousness been about? 
and what are the relationships of worldly power to what might be called spiritual power? How does love relate to MX missiles and nuclear warheads? And uh, where in Ronald Reagan and uh, Gaddafi and Alexander Haig and Brezhnev and where in all and Begin and all of these people, where is that quality that is in each of us? And where is the way to make contact of that common thread that is, that is our heritage as human beings? And what has happened to get us to this particular moment? And is this moment any more dramatic than the plagues of the Middle Ages? Has technology led us into a cul-de-sac? Or is technology the vehicle for our liberation? Is technology something to be feared? Or is it the stepchild of our intellect and we merely must know how to use it as a servant and not be mastered by it? Now, in the midst of all of this stuff, these are the events, the stuff, the stuff that people use in playing with their consciousness. And um, there are a number of what I call astral scenarios you can impose on these data. You can impose the scenario of the coming Armageddon and say, well, the Bible prophesies that this will happen. The Arab-Israeli conflict, the Russian power, ultimately the Chinese power, etc., And you can say it's all getting bad and it's going to get worse. Because there's no way that you can control terrorism. And as long as there are haves and have-nots, and as long as you and I are meeting in this lovely auditorium on this magnificent campus where we are so opulently representative of the 6% of the world population that's using 40 to 50% of the natural resources, as long as we want to play king of the mountain, we realize how vulnerable we are, and it's going to become more so. And in the Armageddon scenario, you assume that this is all going to go up in smoke at some point, because the have-nots are not going to sit around being have-nots when there is the power to change the balance. So that your bank account, or your land, or your ownership of your car, or your hi-fi set, or the electricity you plug it into, or the energy as the very vulnerable trade routes which oil is brought in, and are up for grabs. All of these things can disappear just like that. And you can look inside yourself to see what kind of fear that generates in you. What kind of feeling of anxiety, really dramatic changes in your lifestyle would awaken in you. And my feelings from myself and from those of us that I know that are gathered here, is that we as a general population, for some reason or other, have less anxiety about that than the general population. 
because we are looking at all this from a different conceptual framework, a different context. Then there's the scenario of the New Age, saying that all of this is the birth pains, the birth pangs. This is the, the pain that goes with birth of, lest ye die, ye cannot be reborn again. And it's the dying of the worldly preoccupations and the awakening of the spirit. And that if you look at the world at this moment, it appears that even though there is more juice in paranoia, in negativity, in worldly power tripping, there is simultaneously an incredible shift in awareness of people in the culture, in the world, actually. And that when you look at the antecedents of that, you see that there is television, which has just changed the nature of time and space. I mean, uh, Sadat's death, not so many years ago, the information would have had to come by sailing ship. And we wouldn't have even known Sadat, probably. I mean, we wouldn't have even known of his existence. But he's a media figure. And the media have changed the meaning of time and space and social phenomena. And so it has quickened something. It's changed the nature of the reality, our collective reality. This is all technology, transportation, the mobility that we can jump in cars and, or planes or ships and go be here and there. So that I can have lived in this lifetime, I can have lived in India and in Europe and in Japan and in Bali and in Australia and Mexico and and I think nothing of it. I mean, it's just part of my zeitgeist, my worldview. And that when I lived in cultures that are extremely different from my own, it's changed the sort of uh, ethnocentricity of my perceptions. It's changed the, the way in which I view the world. I mean, living up in a little village in India, where I, I live with people who have, like, one suit of clothes and who make maybe a dollar a day and eat the same food each day, simple foods that are indigenous to the area. And in the villages, very often the electricity either doesn't exist or is out. And there there's no television and the radio crackles and it doesn't use the waste to even try to listen to it. And people don't live as old as they live here, except for a few. There's more infant mortality. And yet, when I'm with those people... I feel that in that little village there is more contentment, more um, harmonious being with the universe, more presence than I feel among my affluent colleagues and brothers and sisters of the West. 
and I've had that direct experience, and how does that temper the values that I grew up with that said more is better? I was led to believe that if I had more and more and more largesse, worldly largesse, somehow I would be happier. And part of that transition is that in the television, we can look at our hero figures of this culture. Ronald Reagan, who we elected, uh, Frank Sinatra, uh, you know, all of our mythic people who, who made it, who got what the society had to offer. And we can look, the television doesn't, even with all the pancake makeup, Johnny Carson, it doesn't hide at all. And you can feel, you can almost feel a palpable quality of suffering, of fear and suffering. In the old days, when there weren't that immediacy, you would just read articles about these people in the weekly journal. Or you'd hear about them through the town crier, or you would have heard about them by word of mouth. And you wouldn't get that direct experience that keeps undercutting our myths. I mean, Nelson Rockefeller, even Teddy Kennedy. Now, uh, all of these things, from the scenario of the New Age, can be seen as what is burning out a certain set of values and attitudes and perceptions on our part that are making us ripe for the rebirth. And that that rebirth of definition of ourself, of what we're doing in the universe, that rebirth is what changes the whole dance around. And that all of the stuff that is so scary to us is merely a creation of mind. Because obviously, this is a conspiracy of mind that uh, Caspar Weinberger and Ronald Reagan and, and uh, all these nice fellows um, are creating about what is real. And when uh, Jimmy Carter attempted to bring another cast of mind in, the problem was that he wasn't pure enough in his game because he cared too much. He was too much in the world. I remember Maharaji saying about Abraham Lincoln, he was a good president because he knew Christ was president. He was only acting president. Can you imagine the depth of what that message is? The depth of the quality of what it must be like. But even the supposed good bad guys, I mean, I don't know who's good guy in politics, who gets that much power without wanting to play in the power domain. And if you want to play in the worldly power domain, it's a tricky business about what motives you've got to begin with. But Anwar Sadat, who would say, I won't die a moment before God wants me to die. But very few people who are defining the collective state of mind in which we are dwelling. And we are just dwelling in a state of mind. That's it. And that mind manifests in this action or that action. Uh, 
some of you know that we have a uh, the Hanuman Foundation, which receives your large S that the University of California doesn't receive, has a prison project. And the prison project is concerned with states of mind. And if you understand that example, then you can understand what I'm talking about a little better. Is in the prison project, if you look at, this is repetitive, a lot of my stuff is repetitive, but that's okay. I mean, if you're just hearing it for the, a dozen times, think of how many times I've said it, you know. And uh, it's okay. Is everybody here thus far? Is anybody upset yet? Okay. <laughs> okay. But just, uh, just this image of a monastery prison. When you think of a monastery, you think of monks. You think of cells. You think of everybody wearing the same clothes. You think of everybody eating at a common table. You think of people being told what to do a lot and spending a lot of time in their cells. And what do you think of when you think of prisons? Cells, uniforms, people eating at a common table, people being told what to do all day. The difference is one group chooses to be there and the other group's forced to be there to remove them from society. And your colleagues in one setting aren't as much the spiritual community as in another. But as I started whatever this game is, the Ramdas in 1968 and then onward, I started to get letters from inmates in prison. And for me, prison was like, since I had came out of the drug culture, prison was where you went to when you weren't an impeccable warrior. And uh, it was a school for non-impeccable warriors. And... Uh, I'd received letters from these beings, and it felt like I was receiving letters from a monk in a monastery. And yet they were in prison. And I saw the parallels between these situations. And pretty soon, after the letters got more and more numerous, and we started a newsletter to these people, and then started a whole project and created books, this book Inside Out, which we give away. And the image I had was then of a cell block in which there are 15 inmates and three guards, and the inmates all think they're in a monastery. The only people left in prison then are the guards. See, and, and they can be helped too. And in fact, we got to the point, I mean, we got so prestigious as the prison ashram project because Bo and Sita Lozov, who run it, are quite essency as uh, human beings and really through their hearts and souls for like, now, I don't know, five, seven years into the prison project, that the, not only uh, do the inmates like us, but the Federal Bureau of Prisons likes us, and even the State Bureau of Prisons, different states. We consult with the New York State Bureau. Bo runs weekend workshops for parole officers, things like that. And then we all go in and speak in prisons. And uh, the inmates are a much more demanding audience than the parole officers. Because a con can smell a con a mile away, you know, I'll tell you. And they know just when they're being had. And you've got to really be straight because they sit there like, okay, you motherfucker, what are you? That's very beautiful. You some kind of saint. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> 
sure, aren't you? <laughs> but at one point, we even got to the point where uh, they were setting up a new prison in Butner, North Carolina, and they were going to, it was going to be an experimental, four experimental units. One of them was going to be built on sort of gestalt therapy and so on. And one of them was going to be a yoga ashram where the inmates were going to grow their own vegetables and we were going to train the guards uh, to not only be guards but to be conscious beings a little bit about what it could be. Because the only contract is that these people be kept off the streets. That's the only contract. Not that while they're in there they have to be punished in a certain way. And uh, at that point, the warden who had been, was going to be the warden of the new prison, he'd been a warden for 35 years in the federal warden game, he resigned. And he and I had a lo lovely meeting. And I said to him, I see the only option is we have to create our, set up our own prison. We have to start a private prison. <laughs> and... Uh, Oh, it sounds funny, but it's very reasonable. And then we'll rent space to the federal and state governments. They're very overcrowded. And we will promise to keep these people off the street, and we'll create it our way. And I'm waiting for somebody to come along with a grant to do that. Uh, it's a very obvious thing to do, and it would be just a great deal of fun. <laughs> but now, you see, the reason I bring that whole issue up at this moment is because it shows you that these are all just states of mind, that even something as gross as a prison, an inmate, just because they have to serve time, they can use their time to get free of time, is what our argument is. Because we're all imprisoned by our own minds anyway, and if you can get free of the imprisonment of your own mind while you're in prison when you get out, because the recidivism rate in prison is like 75% now, something like that. And 75% of the people that get out are back within about a year for doing the same thing they got into there for the first time. Because, you know, it's a school for losers. You hang out only with losers and you're constantly retrained by losers about how to lose again. There are no winners in there. I mean, there's no people that wanted crime. So it is possible to shift that game around and no, no rehabilitation programs work because they all consider it a prison and they identify these people with their acts. So as pervasive as this state of mind is that is bruited about on the news each night and in the newspapers each day and by one consciousness to another over coffee in every cafe and how much, it's, how much our whole way of looking at the world, like sports in competition, the competitiveness in world power, in relationships, winning and losing, winners and losers, all of that is a package of consciousness. It's a package of, of perception. And that can be seen as real and solid, or it can be seen as a whisper of thought. And if you were free of it, you would be like, you'd walk down the street like a light. 
because your light would not be shrouded by your own fear. Because that whole mind model has inherent within it fear. For you to buy into it, you have, as a result of it, fear. And so the New Age metaphor says all of that is merely the breakdown of the incredible attachment that we as incarnates have had to our physical, psychological reality. And now there's the breakthrough, and the breakthrough is occurring, and there is a mass of growing awareness, and that growing awareness is a force. It is not a force that you can label as a political force, because it doesn't use the political field. It's not a political vehicle. Because when you look at it, the social change isn't necessarily mediated through the political marketplace. That may be one of the last places that responds. Because from my point of view, when I look at the social institutions, I learned an interesting thing from Tim Leary. I learned a lot of things from Tim Leary, but back in the early 60s, I remember uh, we started uh, Freedom Center, which was a prison project. Then we started the Castalia, no, then we started IFIF, the International Federation for Internal Freedom. Then we started the Castalia Foundation, which was at Millbrook. Then I had, and then I left, and then Tim had the League for Spiritual Discovery, LSD. And uh, I remember I was the sort of, um, the, the ground for the situation. I was the guy that dealt with lawyers and bank books and all that stuff. So I'd get the lawyer to start the foundation and to get a nonprofit foundation, many of you know, is a, it's a little dance you do with the government, with the Internal Revenue Service. And I would just get a foundation going and Tim would come in and say, well, let's start IFIF. I'd say, well, what happened to Freedom Center? Well, he'd say, we outgrew it. I'd say, but we're about to get tax-exempt status. He'd say, well, start it on if-if. And what he was teaching me was that institutions tend to calcify a great deal, very quickly, until pretty soon the tail's wagging the dog. And that it's very hard for people to grow within institutional structures because very few institutional structures are designed consciously to allow for growth, allow for self-destruct, if you will, or allow for modification. And I'm hoping sometime in the next year to have a, uh, a weekend workshop with uh, a very beautiful guy from uh, La Jolla who runs a, uh, a holistic healing center, a big center, a uh, Krishna and Mira Bush who run Illuminations, the group that make those rainbows and the calendars and the decals and all that stuff, who started in a garage five years ago and now have a huge big empire. And um, I want Danny Rifkin, who's the manager for the Grateful Dead. And I want to talk with this group over the weekend publicly about institutions and how do institutions stay living truth or how do they die into something where everybody starts to go to sleep into the institution. And when I look about, I see very few institutions that, that allow for the growth of the human spirit. 
certainly not religious institutions, they're very hard to work with, as you are all learning, I think. Although the stuff is potential in there. And to me, the only social institution that is the one we have to focus on is the individual human heart. That's it. That is the social institution which has a direct link to living truth. And it's not mediated through the human intellect. And it is the one institution that makes contact with another member of itself across, you and I will meet in our hearts. And that when I look at social change, I see that social change is mediated through the individual human heart. When there are enough hearts that resonate together, they become a force which changes the nature of the game. And those hearts can transcend language barriers, they can transcend cultural barriers. It's like the difference between dealing with a Russian person and somebody who is part of the USSR. Those are two different things. The USSR is, a, is super, an institution superimposed on a group of human beings. And if you go over to Russia and you hang out with a Russian, you will meet another being who you'll recognize. You'll recognize them as, within the, as a heart-to-heart -heart connection. And you can then see nationality as merely ego writ large. It's really what it is. So in the New Age scenario of the 1980s, we are at the point where the transition is occurring. And what did you expect in a transition? Did you expect it all to be roses? It's letting go of stuff that we thought we needed in order to become what we are more. And under that scenario, this is the most exciting and creative and innovative and awakening period that history has ever known. And we in this affluent society that allows us to meet like this, to share this, are in this rare position that we've taken an incredible human birth to be in this position. That's that scenario. See how different they are. I mean, you can go, I can go on with scenarios ad nauseum. I mean, I'll give you a scenario that you and I are these old beings who have been incarnating as many times as there are grains of sand on the beach. And we are all, at this point, we have been waiting to take incarnation at a time, I'm talking about all of the beings on earth, where at a certain moment, because of the nature of the conditions we will create, there will be a huge mushrooming white light, and we will all get liberated at that moment. And that's our grace. That's a scenario. It's just as real as any other one. I mean, why don't you buy that one? Come on, Haig, make it worse. Come on, let's go. Let's get it. Let's get the, come on, let's go. Come on, Russia. Come on, Khomeini. Let's go. 
hurry up. I mean, I'm only going to live so long. I want to be part of the white light. Then Gaddafi becomes one of our heroes. I mean, just scenario. These are all mine. This is all the creation of mine. And some of these creations of mine increase suffering and some of them decrease suffering. But the funny thing is, in the deepest analysis, all creations of mine create suffering because they're just scenarios. And what is, is. And then there are scenarios to explain what is. And you and I are exploring how is it possible to be alive in a human incarnation and to stand nowhere. Because the minute you stand within a scenario, you are standing someplace. And the minute you are standing someplace, you're attached to the little piece of earth on which you're standing, whether it's a mind or physical or psychological. And the minute you're attached, then your thoughts, your perceptions, your actions are all things which are self-fulfilling prophecies, which create exactly the thing that you are working on, but they also create all the polar opposites of it, too. They create karma, it's called. So the minute you're attached even to a scenario that this is all coming towards heaven on earth, you are creating suffering. You're creating more stuff. And how can you live in the world without and do things without creating a lot of stuff? That's what we're about. That's what we're all trying to tune to. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you.